Namaste and welcome to Pods by PI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. My name is Saurabh Lama. In this very special episode brought to you all the way from Sri Lanka, we have the conversation between Anurag Acharya, Director of Practice at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. and George Cook. George is a diplomatic historian whose main areas of research include foreign policy, diplomacy, regionalism, and integration. He's a senior lecturer at the Department of International Relations, University of Colombo, and visiting lecturer at the National Defense College of Sri Lanka, Bandaranaike International Diplomatic Training Institute, Defense Services Command, Staff College, and the Sri Lanka Air Force Academy, amongst others. In this episode, George and Anurag discussed infrastructure development in Sri Lanka, the current Sri Lankan economic landscape, and the various factors that have contributed to the unfolding crisis in the island nation. They also discussed the lessons that Nepal and other developing countries can draw from Sri Lanka's much-talked-about infrastructure aid and diplomacy. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Namaste, this is Anurag Acharya. Aibuan, vanakam, I'm George Cook, and welcome to Sri Lanka. Thank you, George. We are happy to be recording this conversation from Sri Lanka. So, George, before we get into the conversation, I just want to share a few nuggets that we could gather from our last visit in in Bangladesh and our own working in Nepal. I think aid and infrastructure landscape in South Asia is changing so rapidly because countries like Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka taking this opportunity to invest in their future growth have made significant investment in infrastructures. And some, some of it has also led to tangible results. For instance, we talk about Bangladesh's experience with this much-talked-about Padma Bridge project, which has linked the less developed part of the country, bringing an immense benefit to thousands of families. So we are talking in that context. So I just want you to let us know and, and begin this conversation by giving us a brief overview of the aid and infrastructure landscape of the country. I mean, like, how will you describe Sri Lanka's economic landscape and what has been the overall growth trajectories uh, in the past decade and what are the areas that hold potential for this growth? When we look at Sri Lanka and you're asking about the last decade and we're talking about a very crucial decade, this is a decade post-conflict. This is a decade in which there was much yearning for growth, development, prosperity. People wanted to do things instantly. Things had been on hold during the conflict. There was development taking place. It's not that nothing happened. But of course, it was stunted to a large extent. Investors would be concerned about going into a country in which there was a conflict raging. There were bombs exploding. You were very worried about the returns on your investment. And this was where, post-2009, Sri Lanka reached out to several countries, eager to attract investment. Whether it was investment from the neighboring countries, whether it was from beyond countries in Europe, wherever it may have been, there was, of course, a certain lack of interest being expressed in return. Maybe countries were also facing their own internal issues. They also have to be mindful that it's not the time may be right in Sri Lanka, the time may not be right in their own countries. They've got to think of, we've got to be mindful of that, and they've got to think of those factors too. And one of the countries that did come forward in a pretty large way was China. And we saw um, a resurgence of investment. Investments that had started, investments that were being continued, some were being modified. 
and we saw a whole lot taking place. So when we look at the trajectory in the last 10 years, if you look at the last 13 years to be specific, we've seen a lot of development in the area of the building of highways, roads, connectivity, all of which are very vital for a country in terms of improve, improving transportation, improving communication. And this was seen or was believed to be a huge impetus to improve economic growth, make the country prosper, help the country grow quickly. But of course, issues did come up. Issues did come up uh, with regard to some of the investments. And we're talking about strategy, which we can talk about later on as well. But in the last 10 to 13 years, certainly there was a huge interest. And of course, maybe we've got to remove the last couple of years from that equation because of COVID and other developments that took place in Sri Lanka. But in the period from 2009 to 2019, we did see renewed interest on the Sri Lankan part to speed up development, ensure that we attract as much investment as possible. You mentioned the crucial role that the investment in this infrastructure plays to spur the growth. So do you think that Sri Lanka has figured out the way of financing these infrastructures and what are the major financing avenues for these mega infrastructures and who are the major development partners here and, and what are the initiatives that they have invested in? So from independence onwards, Sri Lanka has relied on lots of external assistance. This has come in the form of grants. It has come in the form of loans. We have later on gone into various financial instruments. We're talking about international sovereign bonds. We're looking at loans from international financial organizations, institutions. Now, this is not something new. This is not something that happened in the last decade. This has been going on for decades. And we've had even donor conferences, which have been absolutely vital in supporting the country. But of course, we understand every donor conference requires tangible proposals. It's not a case where countries come, you know, institutions sit down and they write you a check and they say you can have any amount of money. They want to know what the money is going into. And when we look at that particular period, when we look at this period post-conflict in particular, uh, we saw the possibility, the potential of growing uh, the investments that we were receiving. As to whether we were getting them on a regular basis, that was questionable. As to whether countries were really giving it to us was questionable. How we were going to use the money that we were getting, how we were going to repay it, that's the most important question. And this is where we have got to now stop and take stock of the situation and understand, did we strategize back there? Did we think about when we would have to repay it? What would happen if we had issues from now until then? How would we have enough resources to settle these, to honor these agreements, to honor these debts that we had uh, accumulated. And that's a problem area. And that's probably something that we have not done effectively. Of course, when you look at connectivity, when you look at the expenses that are accrued, for example, from hosting an international summit, it's very easy to add up the bills. But you cannot add up the returns. You're going to have people traveling. You're going to have people coming for the first time. You're going to have investors visiting. The returns are massive. That's what it should be. As to whether it actually happens that way, now that's questionable at times. But in Sri Lanka's case, quite sadly, there has been a question about strategy. How have we planned? It's easy to take. It's easy to ask in the first place. It's easy to take it. 
you can find loads of projects to use the money for, but then we must never forget that there is a repayment process involved. How do we go about financing them? And that is an area in which today we are facing a huge issue. In April of this year, we were unable to pay, continue paying uh, the international debt that we had, and we had to stop that at that point. But then going forward, we've got to start at some point. We can't sit back and say, oh, we can't pay. Nobody's going to give us any assistance in future. Who would want to assist a country? Look at it on an individual basis. If you default on your bank, is your bank ever going to give you another loan? You can't even go to another bank because they know that you have defaulted. You're not going to get anything in return. So this is where we've got to ensure that we bite the bullet. It's a very tough time right now. The economic crisis has worsened. Fundamentally, we question as to whether things have changed in December of 2022 as to how they were in the middle of this year. But we've got to move forward. We've got to look at that next step. We've got to repay. Right. I think you've mentioned something very crucial that there is a time you need to take a pause and take a stock of things. So when you do that, how do you assess the institutional process through which these negotiations take place, through which these projects are vetted? And how are these projects identified and, and financed? What is the institutional process on the Sri Lankan side? We know that there are you know some donors that have rigorous processes through which they assess these big projects. And then there are others that rely on domestic institutional process, especially in bilateral cases. So what is Sri Lanka's own institutional process while negotiating and identifying these projects? I'll tell you what it should be. Sometimes it's questionable as to whether it is that. Fair enough. It should be a process of very tough negotiation where we sit down at the table fully aware of what we can do and what we are willing to do not just sitting there and agreeing to everything that is being put forward in terms of conditions and terms. Some of them might not be possible, but for the purpose of getting the loan, we agree to it. If that may have happened, I'm not privy to some of the discussions that have taken place, so I wouldn't be able to comment on that in detail. But of course, we've got to sit down at that negotiating table completely aware of what we are getting into. And thereafter, there are situations. You talked about how we'd have to do assessments, reports. Look at it from an environmental perspective, for example. If you look at some of the major infrastructure projects in this country, they've had to face a lot of environmental um, assessments, coverage. Now, they've gotten through those. They've passed those bars. They've jumped over them. Now, if there still is an environmental issue, if there still is a problem, it's not their fault. It's our fault. We did not set the bar high enough. We did not set the standards high enough. Or there were loopholes in the system where they were able to get through them very easily. Now, this is where we have to stop and question, we've got to put our own house in order. Have we done that? So you look at the port city. There were more than 30 environmental clearances that had to be obtained. And they were obtained. Legally, on paper, they've been obtained. So then if there still is some kind of impact on the environment, there's a question. What have we done about it? And have we gone about it the right way? It's the same thing with the highways, which are extremely good for connectivity around the country. But we are now hearing of, seeing stories on the news of flooding that is taking place in areas which never flooded before. Areas where the highways are running through. Now, what has been done in terms of the environmental assessment in those areas? How was that passed? 
have we not set the bar high enough or has this been a natural phenomenon that has suddenly erupted i doubt it's the latter you've been listening to pods by pi i am saurabh lama this is a quick reminder to all of you to do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leaving a review on spotify apple podcasts and google podcasts or wherever you listen to the show now let's get back to the conversation between anurag and george well you make these interesting points and and some of that echoes back to what is happening back in nepal as well and and through some of our conversation in dhaka we hear that there are similar concerns even in bangladesh and then rightly you talk about need to you know reflect upon your own institutional process and assess whether you've done your due diligence on your part rather than just pointing fingers but having said that you can't discount the fact that there are these geopolitical concerns being raised especially in nepal's as well as in sri lanka's case with regards to infrastructure initiatives like bri which is pitted against other you know non chinese funded projects like a millennium challenge compact project so in nepal there was similar contestation over whether mcc project should go ahead and even in sri lanka that happened and sri lanka ultimately decided not to go forward with it and you were earlier mentioning that the part of due diligence is identifying whether it makes sense in terms of environmental economic and and uh, social impacts and whether it makes sense or not so why do you think a project like mcc which is essentially not a loan project why did it still get into so much of controversy when this was not a straightforward a loan project it was a grant project it shouldn't have got into any kind of trouble it should have been smooth sailing because it wasn't something that the americans were forcing on sri lanka sri lanka asked america gave and then we said we don't want now from an american point of view it looks rather ridiculous we are seeking assistance and we've done so in the past and we've received mcc grants in the past this is funding that is being given as you said it is not a loan it is a grant of course all countries are giving it because they've got interests they've got their own ideals things that they want to achieve and that's acceptable that's understandable as well but the level the extent to which it went to in sri lanka you had certain elements rising up and saying oh this is an attempt to divide the country they even got poster competitions organized where posters were drawn children were involved we're going way too far there this is where the mcc the bri any project the port city hambantota any of these projects in sri lanka have not been effectively communicated to the public by the government of the day they have failed to do that if you want to sign an agreement if you want to get into a partnership you must do so in consultation with your people this is a part and parcel of democracy sri lanka is the oldest democracy in this part of the world we need to have the people in the question failure to do so has resulted in uprisings as we saw earlier this year and when we look at the mcc was there sufficient healthy debate about both sides of the mcc i'm afraid there wasn't there was just one side that was being uh, pitted out all the time it's negative it's bad it's american there might have been something good about it this has happened with lots of international agreements well well i ca- i can identify with that because i think we also got quite a few brickbats for saying that it is in our interest to have a healthy and open discourse regarding any of such projects 
So do you think this is a timely reminder, not just in Sri Lanka, but also in larger South Asia's aid discourse on how important the uh, civil society and, and the media plays in facilitating this discourse and also fighting back the disinformation that tends to surround these projects and wherever the big donors or power game is discussed, there is more disinformation rather than information that surrounds the media discourse and public discourse. I couldn't agree more. Awareness and dialogue are two important ingredients in any healthy democracy. We need to build that awareness amongst people. People need to be discussing. People need to know. People need to have ownership. It is, after all, our country. We need to know what is happening in the country. Very often we sit back and hope, wish, that those in leadership positions will take the right decisions. But sometimes we question them further down the line. But that might be a bit too late. And this is where, if there is going to be an agreement of this nature, which is understood to be sensitive, or where you feel there might be a lot of negativity arising out of it, there needs to be much more awareness. This has been across the board. It is not only with regard to aid agreements, not only with regard to financial instruments. This is also with regard to human rights. When we look at resolutions, why Sri Lanka co-sponsored a resolution once? It was not effectively communicated to people. And hence, the camp that thought of denouncing it won over because they were able to put out a very strong argument. Irrespective of the pros and cons of it, we need to have the debate. We need to have the discussion. And that dialogue is so very important because then people are informed. People know what it is. Sometimes you might ask people, what is the MCC? And they might say, we have no clue about it. What is the BRI? Never heard of it. You never know. There are different views, different ideas out there. So this is where a lot more awareness is necessary, is happening now. Thankfully, that is happening. We are living in a technology-driven era in which there is no excuse for us not to know what is happening. We have platforms. We need to create spaces, spaces of this nature as well. Creating that awareness, generating the dialogue means so much at the end of the day for a country like Sri Lanka. These are some very valid points that you make. But beyond that, if you look at Sri Lanka right now, there is an impending uh, economic crisis, which was followed by a period of political instability. And as we talk, there is seething discontent throughout the country over the state of the economy and, and the political fallout following that. What do you think is the way out of this impending crisis? Because we talk about investment leading to jobs, leading to more growth. Whereas over here, we are talking about how to get out of the you know mess that was in the first place is now being blamed on these high level of investments in these infrastructures. When we want to play the blame game, if you go down to that, if you want to see who's to blame and how things have unfolded, Getting international assistance, taking loans, taking grants is not something new. It's not something unique that Sri Lanka did. Countries do this around the world. Countries have done it and really grown their economies. They are in very prosperous positions. Just take a look at Southeast Asia and you will understand how organizations like the ADB really supported those countries to stand up and become powerhouses that they are today. Economically, they are doing extremely well. Now, in Sri Lanka's case, this is a very unique situation. We've had problems that have been manufactured at home, man-made issues. These are locally grown issues, homegrown issues. 
we look for homegrown solutions all the time. Let us also identify that we have homegrown issues or homegrown problems. Certain policies that were brought into operation, certain advice that was given, certain measures that were taken were completely offline. They were not thought of properly. They were not strategized. We did not look at the bigger picture. We did not understand what was transpiring at that particular point in time. Decisions were made. Results have been seen in a very short span of time. This is where in 2022, Sri Lanka really had this moment of awakening. Awakening from a democratic angle, but also beginning to realize that, whoa, economics plays a big role in our lives. On one side, we talk about the freedom of expression, the right of speech, the right to gather. We talk about all of those things. But there's also the economic side to it. People need to eat. People need to survive. People need to be concerned about issues of nourishment, health concerns that are rising in the country. It's manifold. It's large scale. How do we address all of these issues? Now, this is where Sri Lanka has faced a situation right now where the economic crisis that has exploded already, it is very much around. We've got to think of how we're going to get out of this. We have gotten out of these situations before. Never, of course, on this scale. We faced the tsunami and we came out of it. We lost thousands of lives. That was seen to be one of the biggest disasters this country ever faced. We've had terrorism. We've had bombs exploding in public places, leaders being killed, civilians, innocent people going home after work, losing their lives, losing their lives at work, on the roads, in their homes. But we've come out of all of that. That is resilience. But going forward, we need a plan. We need a plan of how we are going to resuscitate the economy. That's the most important thing. We keep saying we want investment, we want dollars. No one's just standing there waiting to throw the dollars our way. Investors are not just waiting to come flying in here. We need to have a national plan. When we have an investment coming into the country, what is the investment coming for? Is it fitting into the bigger picture of what we want to achieve in Sri Lanka in the next 10 years, in the next 50 years? Is that happening? No. When it comes to attracting tourists, when it comes to reaching out to new markets, when it comes to reaching out to different corners of the world, have we done that effectively? No. There are lots of no's that keep coming up. And this is something that we've got to correct. This is where we must have vision. We must know where we want to go and what we want to achieve. If we don't do that, we're going to be in that same place that we are right now. And we are very sadly in one particular position. One of the first things that should be done and should have been done much earlier this year was the convening of a donor conference. This is the time we really need one. This is the time where we need to reach out to friends in the international community and seek their assistance. But that is not grants that we are looking at. We're looking at investments. We're asking countries, come in. But of course, to do that, we must have proposals ready for them to come and invest in. We should have spent this year preparing those. We should be doing it right now. This is where early next year, we really need to have a massive donor conference, which is going to convene. We have countries like Japan, which have organized them in the past. Have we reached out to Japan? Have we asked them to do something similar in the future? 
bring together like-minded countries, countries that trade extensively with us, that have invested extensively in our country, with which we have large connections from a social point of view. Lots of Sri Lankans are living in those countries. Ask them to come on board, support the country at this time. Everything is hanging on an IMF loan at the moment. We're hoping that the International Monetary Fund will come to our rescue and everything will be okay. But once we get that money, we've got to realize there are other debts to be paid, plus that debt that we will have to pay in the future as well. So we're just accumulating. We're not looking at ways of getting out of it. Right. Talking about the crisis, what do you think will be the longer term impact of this economic crisis on Sri Lanka's overall development aspirations? We have a mass exodus of people. That is one of the biggest concerns. These are accountants. These are medical professionals. These are economists. These are academics. This is the youth. People are leaving this country on an hourly basis. This is of huge concern. We're going to come to a point, a crunch moment in the next couple of years, where we're going to realize that senior medical professionals who were holding the health sector together have now gone. There will be 0.01% of the population that will fly to countries outside for medical assistance. They'll go to Singapore, they'll go to America, they'll go getting their medical assistance, uh, examinations, surgeries done over there. 99.9 of us, what are we going to do? We are going to suffer. Now, this is where we need to be very mindful. That's just one particular field that I'm talking about. There are so many other sectors. You're seeing massive brain drain. Countries are very willingly taking Sri Lankans. Countries are reaching out, contacting Sri Lankans and inviting them to their countries. They want them to come. They know there is potential. Now imagine all of these people put together what we can do in this country. We need them in this country at this point. Leaving the country is not the solution. But that does not mean you're going to, you're going to block people from going. They have their freedom if they want to go. Because they've lost hope. They are very concerned about their children's future. They put their futures aside. They're thinking of the next generation. They're thinking of their education. They're thinking of stability in their lives. But when it comes to the overall picture of where Sri Lanka is going, we're losing human capital. That's one of our biggest assets in this country. Look at the other sectors that we have. Look at the natural resources that we have. Look at the progress that we have made towards some degree of industrialization. Everything's coming to a halt. We're really facing a crunch moment right now. This is not only economic, this is national. It is much larger than the economic issues. We might get the money, we might tide over this particular period. What comes after that? Have we thought of the social impact this is having? People are so frustrated, they are really, most of them are giving up. This is not a time to give up, but there's only so much of hope that you can preach. People want to see action. They want to see confidence. They want to see those confidence-building measures being taken by the government, by the leadership. And we're not seeing that sometimes. Before, you also mentioned about the role and what the Sri Lankan government itself can do to help get itself out of the unfolding crisis. But tell us, what can the development partners learn from this crisis? Is there a learning for them to, you know, what not to do? Countries are looking for opportunities. Sri Lanka is a country that goes out there and asks for assistance and those countries see opportunity for themselves. They're going to give. We keep asking, they will keep giving in the form of loans. Many countries have done that. Then we grow deeper in debt 
to them. So are they going to then stop giving? No. They are increasing their power share. And that's what they want to do on the world stage. So we can't ask them not to give. We can't ask them to stop giving. That's within their prerogative because they are really growing their own economies. They are growing their opportunities. They are seeing their stature, their position on that ladder, the power ladder in the world growing higher and higher. And this is where they've got to be mindful when working with countries, especially our own, be mindful of corruption. But at the end of the day, we can't ask them to look out for corruption in our country. That's something we've got to do. But they also realize it. They've probably seen it. They experience it much more than we do. They see it actually happening. We might not see the actual transaction taking place. They are very concerned. But this is where they need to hold us to much higher standards. For example, let's look at GSP+. When it comes to receiving the GSP plus benefit, we have to adhere to several standards, several regulations. Now, is that bad? It's not. It's good for us. It's good for our people. It's good for the democracy that we live in. We must understand that. That must be communicated to people. If we look at it as, oh, oh, look at the impositions that are being placed on us. It's not negative in any way. It's actually beneficial asking countries to sign international conventions which have obviously been put into place for the good of humanity as a whole. What's wrong in that? There is another side if we want to draw up issues, if we want to raise up problems, we can always do that. If we want to find key connectors, if we want to find key points that are going to bring us together, we can also do that. So this is where the international community needs to continue when reaching out to Sri Lanka, when dealing with Sri Lanka or other countries that are in similar situations, hold countries up to high standards. You've got to adhere to those, especially when you look at the current financial economic crisis in Sri Lanka. Question the benefits, the perks that are enjoyed by those in positions of leadership. Are those going to continue? Everybody's talking about a haircut. Everybody's gone bald actually at the moment, except for a few who are not having any haircut. They continue to enjoy the lives that they lead. This is questionable. This is concerning. I'm guessing those are the tips, not just for the multilaterals, but also for the bilaterals, is it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And finally, just before we wrap up, I just want to get your thoughts on what can other South Asian countries like Nepal, Bangladesh, learn from Sri Lanka's experience? Borrow and borrow if you must. That's one of the ways in which we grow our economies. We can find homegrown solutions and do it in the long term. It'll take decades. We'll save, we'll try to find ways of increasing our funding. But that's a very long process. Countries don't want that. People don't want that. People want to see instant development, instant progress. They want to benefit from it. They want to enjoy it. We need international assistance. But the biggest lesson to learn from Sri Lanka is to wipe out corruption. That must not be tolerated at all. We are in the situation we are in. We are in the mess we are in. It's worse than a situation. It's actually a mess because of corruption. If you look at some of the infrastructure around this country, it is amazing. It is great for connectivity. It is very well uh, needed. But look at the cost at which it has come. Why has that happened? We've looked away. 
We've trusted leaders. We've hoped that they would do the right thing. They've let us down. We've got to hold them to much higher standards. At election times, we've got to stop and question, if you make a promise, are you going to deliver it? And then hold them up to that. Go behind them once they are voted into power. Ask them, where is their promise that they made? This is something that we need, and this is something that has to be done in a very vigorous manner. We've also got to be mindful that while corruption is a huge issue, is a huge problem, we've also got to understand that we've got to become that much more aware. Whilst corruption might be out of our hands as individuals, awareness is not. That is something that we can do. That is something that we can speak up about. That is something that we should make part and parcel of our daily lives. It's not something that we just read in the newspaper and just put the paper away the next day or we watch on the news and forget about later on. It's something that has got to be followed continuously. And this is where individuals have got to make a difference. Individuals can make a difference. Individuals should be making a difference. And that's a thought-provoking note to end with and a strong message, not just for people in Sri Lanka, but also for people in other developing countries where the country is aspiring for higher growth. Thank you for this conversation, George. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Pods by PI. I hope you enjoyed the conversation between Anurag and George, where they discussed the infrastructure development in Sri Lanka, the current Sri Lankan economic landscape, and the various factors that have contributed to the unfolding crisis in the island nation. They also discussed the lessons that Nepal and other developing countries can draw from Sri Lanka's much-talked-about infrastructure aid and diplomacy. Today's episode is part of The Conversations. It was produced by Nirjun Rai, with support from Saurabh Lama, Kushi Hang, and Chedon Konskar. The episode was recorded at the Surya Village, Colombo, Sri Lanka, and edited by Nirjun Rai. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakya from Zindaba. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. To catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at Tweet2PEI. That's Tweet followed by the number 2 and PEI and on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Saurabh. We'll see you soon in our next episode.